Moroi, Makadi. Hey, how are you doing? This is Kandai and you're listening to Medic's Motive. I'm your medic and the motive for to motivate, inspire and inform. In this podcast, I'll be having conversations with different individuals or for the more planning clients, or not though, docs. Going above and beyond with interesting motives within and on the peripheries of medicine. In a nutshell, you'll be hearing from those doing the most, so you can do even more yourselves. It has indeed been a long second, so yes, I miss you guys too, but break over and back to business. And I'm so, so excited to get started with this episode with Luke Harris. He is currently an AI resident at Microsoft Research Cambridge and previously studied a Master's of Computer Science at UCL and Preclin Medicine at Cambridge University. Listen on to hear more about the intersection between medicine and machine learning and of course your monthly dose of cheesy pearls of wisdom. Hey guys, this is Kundai and you're listening to Medics Motive. So today I'm here with Luke, who will now be introducing himself. Hello everyone, Uh, thank you very much for having me on your podcast, Kundai. Um, So I'm currently a UCL Computer Science Master's student. Um, I'm also running what was a hackathon project and then it's now turned into kind of a mini startup called Visual Cognition, which I'm sure we'll come on to later, but that's helping improve the uh, internet accessibility for people with visual impairments. And uh, I'm also working part-time as a machine learning engineer for a uh, biotech startup. Previously, and why I've been very kindly invited onto this podcast, um, I studied uh, preclinical medicine at Cambridge, and then this is the year in between the preclinical and the clinical. And one topic which I imagine we'll probably end up discussing as well is whether I'm going to go back to finish the clinical <laughs> school. Um, and then, so previous things I did as well when I was at Cambridge was I set up the Cambridge Startup Society and I also launched my first company, which was, uh, it's called Protein, but we're at six universities now and we're organising intra-university sports. So Android and iOS app, which tell you when your games are coming up, organising your team sheets, and then there's the whole league admin side. You're doing just a little bit then? Yeah, well, I've taken, I've taken back seat with um, Protein, but everything else is still going on. Okay, so a good place to start is why medicine in the first place? So to state it out there at the start, my dad's a doctor, and my mum's, uh, she runs the, she's head of life sciences for Brunel. And so I always was aware of being a doctor as a career. And then kind of I started to seriously think about it when I was 15, 16. And I really love science and I really wanted to try and make an impact on people. And I think when you're 15, 16, being a doctor is a clear progression of how you can have a fantastic impact because you spend your entire day uh, meeting people and your job is to make people feel better. Mm. And then, also, it was mo- it was most. So the exposure your parents gave you is yeah. really what put you in. Yeah. So so they were what um, I think exposure to them in the household and hearing them discuss, say, not specific cases, but kind of <laughs> medicine <laughs> as a medicine as a whole definitely got me got me thinking about it. And um, then I did my work experience and absolutely loved it. Um, 
And so, yeah, then arrived at Cambridge fairly naive to the world, ready to study medicine. <laughs> then slightly scared my parents halfway through by taking this year off for uh, the Masters in Computer Science. And what sparked your interest in computer science? Yeah, so I've done, like, the first love of mine was programming. So when I was like, <laughs> everyone else had, like, pets or sports they loved. But when I was, like, um, 14... I used to help uh, mums in the local area, and, and dads actually, uh, learn how to use their new iPhones. So this was when iPhones were first coming out and getting popular. And I used to help people migrate from uh, PC to Mac, and also mm -hmm. learn how to use their new iPhones or iPads. And with that money I saved up to buy like the first, or one of the first iPod Touches, which had apps on it. And so I tried my absolute best to build um, iPhone apps. And that's kind of how I got started, but only very small scale. And then, so when I was at Cambridge during first and second year, I barely had any time because I'm sure it's the same as UCL. It's very intensive. And then third year, you get to choose, uh, you get to interplay. So I did um, psychology, specifically cognitive neuroscience. So all mm -hmm. about um, the neural networks for learning or memory or how you um, translate what's going on physically around you into your visualizations in the brain. And um, during that time, I also had a bit more free time to start coding again. And so that's when we set up the Cambridge Startup Society. I launched Protein. And then I spent a huge amount of time that year coding. And I was really enjoying it. And then I heard about this computer science masters. You don't have to have done the undergrad before. You just have to prove that you can code. And uh, so I applied and got on. How do you start programming? Because it's something that I'm quite interested in, but I just wouldn't know how to approach because there's yeah. so many languages and things like that out there. Yeah, so there's what's fantastic. So when I initially started, when I was 14 and 15, I was absolutely rubbish. And I was trying to build iPhone apps, and it's in a pretty tricky language called Objective-C. And then when I started doing it properly was a couple of years later with Python and JavaScript mm. and so it became a lot more accessible so there was kind of different websites you could go on like Code Academy is fantastic and it kind of talks you through how to build kind of different little games or different websites but I think the first thing you have to decide is why you want to learn to code and um, so I personally think there's two main reasons, especially if you're a bit entrepreneurial, why you may want to learn to code. The first reason being it gives you the ability to know what's possible. Mm. And so like a rough gauge of how difficult um, a problem would be to solve. So, for example, a couple of years ago, if you were trying to build uh, an app to take a picture of um, a mole on the skin and then classify it, if you didn't have any exposure to coding, you wouldn't be able to tell whether that was easier or harder than, say, building a platform game. Okay. Um, and so it was a lot harder. But now, also, what's called machine learning, which is where you train computers on experience, as opposed to kind of rule-based, show it loads of different moles, and you say, this is melanoma and this is normal. Um, and then you're able to train it over time. But that was the first point, which was um, basically being able to know what's possible, right? And the second one is um, being able to then actually build and kind of ideate on what you're trying to develop. 
So you can almost think of it as two main streams. You can think of it as kind of like the software engineering, which is where I want to build an app to help people play university sport. Mm. Or you could think of it as a slightly more data science um, way of, I want to be able to analyze data. And so if you're looking, say, to work in business or say as a doctor and you want to bring in data science skills, that's when it's really useful. And so I've heard good things about a data camp for the second one, for if you're wanting to do kind of data science stuff. Okay. Yeah, but probably Ivan's Ivan's slightly more of an expert than me, <laughs> who came on previously on your podcast. Yeah. yeah. Which would you think has more clinical relevance within medicine, yeah. as in the one where it's more linear and structured, yeah. or the one where it's machine learning? Oh, got you. Norm programmatic coding or machine learning. Thank um, you. <laughs> yeah. Well, just a rephrase. Um, so effectively, hmm, that's a fantastic question. So there's like three really interesting technologies at the moment. There's machine learning, mm. um, which we briefly discussed. There's uh, virtual reality and augmented reality. So you see kind of those headsets and mm. you can go into a, a virtual world or kind of layer stuff onto the current world. And there's also blockchain, which kind of these decentralized uh, ledgers. And so those are like really fascinating technologies and machine learning definitely has huge potential for healthcare. So as we mentioned earlier, say, they're identifying whether a mole is tumorous or not, or um, if you were feeding the details of different uh, like mammograms and you can get uh, the machine learning models to predict whether or not they're malignant or benign tumors. Mm. But what's really fascinating is how much low-hanging fruit there is still in the kind of the software engineering world in relation to healthcare. So building kind of simple apps or simple websites which can really help people. And so one thing I used to do actually when I was younger was, so my mum's a professor in life sciences, and um, I used to build like the public-facing websites for her research. So she would do... Uh, elderly people driving, for example, mm. and when, when, when do you need to know that you should stop driving if you're having, say, you're losing part of your vision, or maybe you need to get checked up with a doctor or an occupational therapist. And so kind of presenting that research to the public side. Or another one is, say, Ivan, for example, is working on Suvira, which is a simple application, very nice design to help elderly people manage their medication. And so these are very kind of simple things, which, if done right, can also have a fantastic benefit for society. Definitely. The smaller things will have more of an impact. Yeah. I was watching a video, yeah. actually, by Dr. Kevin Fong on the future of healthcare. That's and he's saying that things like virtual reality, yes. um, machine learning, it's all very exciting. But if we can work on the problems that we see every day, the smaller yes. things that's where you can catch a lot of the errors and things like that. Yeah, 100%. And so one, another one I've heard is, say, for example, people missing their doctor's appointments. And mm. um, if you think that, I think it's in, the, it's in the millions, definitely, the amount of money lost from people missing their doctor's appointments or GP's appointments. And again, if you have kind of simple kind of SMS-based reminders, which the hospitals and GP clinics are definitely doing, that can reduce the number of people missing their appointments and have fantastic outputs on terms of the money saved and on people's health. Mm. One of the problems within, in kind of implementing more of this is, how do you, 
there's so many problems and small yes. things that we can work on. How do you decide, okay, I want to work on this problem? Yes. And how do you run with that idea? Looking at your CV, that's a loss kind of thing you're kind of doing. <laughs> yeah, and one of the things I've really tried to do is, as you said, run with the idea. Mm. So it's, it's fantastic to have lots of ideas, but you need to kind of execute on them and to, to put it over for a kind of prolonged period of time to invest to actually be able to have an impact. So to give kind of two examples, one where I've done well and one where I've done fine but not had the biggest impact possible is. So firstly, we built, uh, well, overall I would highly recommend hackathons, which is 24 hours, you get together with people of different skill sets to build something. And so at one of these hackathons, I built a tool to help diagnose and deal with macular degeneration, mm. so where you start getting blind spots on your vision. And so it's a virtual reality headset, which you wear, and you look at the two dots in the center, and it flashes dots in your peripheral vision, and you just tap the screen when you can see the dot. So you tap anywhere whenever you see a dot in your peripheral vision. And that can map out your blind spot. Mm. And this is something which currently isn't being done. And we spoke to several doctors both during the hackathon and after, and it's definitely something people want. But that got slightly put in the backlog. And so it's a case of, it's fantastic, I can talk about having built it, but in terms of actually how much impact's been delivered on people, it kind of stopped at the end of that couple of weeks of thinking about it. However, what I've done slightly better with visual cognition is, so again, this was a hackathon, and we got exposed to the idea because Microsoft has an app called Seeing AI, which is for people who are blind or with severe visual impairments, and they can take out their phone and it takes a picture. And it will read out what's in what's going on around them. And it works fantastically well. So it, for example, will, uh, if you take a picture in the park, it will tell you uh, there's a man playing frisbee with his dog. Mm. And you can imagine this, the impact this has on people who are blind or have severe visual impairments. And so another one is, say you're in a restaurant and you take a picture of the menu, it can read out what's on the menu. Now, what we did was we saw that, and I was actually staring at my computer, and so I was looking at the screen, and I was like, but how do visually impaired people or blind people still use the internet? Um, when most of the internet, if you look at the screen, is, is covered with images, and frequently there's text on the images. Mm. Um, and so we set about trying to solve that problem. So this is visual cognition? Yeah, so, yeah. Your previous question was, how do you have the ideas and then execute on them? And just yeah. to summarise my thoughts, it would be basically getting stuck in to loads of different areas which you wouldn't normally be exposed to, such as, say, hackathons or going to different uh, events going on at your university. Mm. And then working with a team of different skill sets to try and take it further and really reaching out to people who know a lot more than you do about these problems you're trying to tackle. Mm. Um, so what we did for visual cognition... Oh, sorry, before yeah. we move on to Go visual cognition, <laughs> I just want to ask, um, what do you think was the difference in how, in the impact that both of those hackathon projects yes. were received? Um, so what was fantastic was we won both those hackathons. Well, we won the Microsoft Prize at one of the hackathons, mm. and we won uh, the overall hackathon at the other with macular degeneration. Um, and the feedback we got from people was for both of them was that it was fantastic um, and we spoke to uh, ophthalmologists so eye doctors to get their 
opinion on the macular degeneration one and they were really keen that we try and take it a bit further um, and I think the problem we slightly had so one was that the team we did it with we were all different backgrounds which was fantastic for when we came together but most of them had full-time jobs or some of them were doing MBAs mm. um, so there was a slight loss of momentum after we had completed that hackathon um, kind of everyone went back to their own lives mm. however with the uh, visual cognition so from the hack from the Cambridge hackathon um, we won the Microsoft Prize and the people from Microsoft were fantastic and immediately gave us introductions to people who would be able to take our idea further mm. and so we were introduced to Catherine Holloway from UCL who's a fantastic researcher so she's a computer scientist and she specializes among other areas on accessibility and so the hackathon had finished and two weeks later we had this meeting with her and she was like, yeah, I think the best thing to do is if we run a study with you and with the Global Disability Innovation Hub and then we'll be able to prove that this tool can really help visually impaired people use the internet. And then secondly, they introduced us to members of the accessibility team at Microsoft. And so Microsoft is fantastic at accessibility. They built a virtual reality tool for blind people. And you may first wonder how, um, how this works yeah. if you can't wear the headset and see what's around you. But this idea of virtual reality doesn't just have to be vision. So their example was a cane, which you could use, uh, the stick blind people use, and you could walk around and there would be, uh, using motors on the cane, you can make them perceive that they were hitting an object and then set up a virtual reality room, which this cane could bump into, and you could train up blind people on, say, how to get onto the tube in a very safe manner, okay. which was fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so Microsoft were fantastic at guiding us further. And we, as a team, we sat down after the hackathon and were like, we really think we're onto something here. Um, it was fantastic how we could build it in 24 hours. And we didn't think it would take that much longer to actually get it being used by people. And so one of the advantages of, just to summarise uh, to the listeners what uh, visual cognition is, uh, it's a Chrome extension, which anyone can download, and it adds in all the missing captions on images on the web. And so when they're using a screen reader, which normally goes through the internet and it reads from top to bottom what's on the page, normally the screen reader has to rely on the developer to write a caption of what the image is. Mm. But this is virtually always missing. So if you think of any LinkedIn posts or Twitter uploaded images, there's no caption. And so we use uh, some pre-built um, machine vision algorithms to generate these descriptions. And so it means that when you're... Um, a fantastic example was, was memes. So if you ever see... <laughs> I know, exactly. If you ever see a meme, on, it's a picture with text on it. And we look at them and think, oh, it's fantastic, oh, it's, it's a cat wearing a hat. With a... Yeah, but for 250 plus million people with mm. visual impairments, they can't see memes. And it's not just kind of the, the social inclusion, such as memes, it's also occu occupational. So if you think of any job posters, which are text on an image background, which mm. are often shared around, that would be completely missing. Um, or if you imagine screenshots of news articles or screenshots of scientific papers, 
So we're working to kind of fill in those missing descriptions. Wait, so a machine automatic automatically writes the descriptions? Yes, exactly. So how it works is, so this is using uh, what's called machine learning, mm. but the Chrome extension just looks on the page and it works out which images are missing the descriptions. If it misses the descriptions, it sends it up to our server. If we've already checked for the description and generated it, we send it back. If not, we send it to four different APIs from Microsoft to work out what text is in the image, which people are in the image, actually what's in the image, and if they have any particular emotions. Wow. So it would come up with something like, this is a picture of Nicolas Cage. He is smiling. Um, the text below says, I'm on a podcast or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wow. So let's move from hackathon idea to a startup. Yes, exactly. So our aim isn't necessarily, well, our aim is not to make money with this startup. It's we built a product using what's out there. And what's fantastic is this wouldn't have been possible two years ago. So these algorithms to generate the descriptions are only now truly publicly accessible. Um, and so we're trying to make it so that every single website, every single one of the big websites, such as Twitter and LinkedIn, adds these captions automatically. And so we're trying to use our Chrome extension to run the pilot study and hopefully get it in people's hands and then use all of that to try and get pressure to make the big companies um, such as, say, Google or Facebook or Microsoft put this built into their products. So if you could imagine, um, so there's, it's called uh, TalkOver on Android. Oh, oh, sorry, TalkBack. And it's another screen reader. So it reads out what's on your Android phone so it can be used for people who are blind. Um, but again, they are lacking any of the captions of images online. So we're first starting with this Chrome extension, which means it can work on any computer. And then we're hopefully moving into mobile devices. And then that will enable us to cover both uh, people in the developed world and the developing world. That sounds amazing. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> to summarize, um, in terms of scaling your impact, it sounds yeah. like maintaining yeah. momentum and also a secure network to help. Yes, no, I think keep you going. definitely if you there's such a buzz at the start of a project mm. and you really need to capitalize on that buzz to get you moving in terms of things which you then have to do, which I really want to do, but you have to do now. We've set up this pilot study. And so we are going to get some people who are blind using our products and then testing how much of an impact it has on them. Mm. And so because we've changed from uh, being a bunch of mates who have all decided to do this mm. to now it's we've got uh, fixed deadlines we have to hit, we've kind of kept the momentum going now. Yes. Exactly as you said, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and in terms of your future in medicine, what's that looking like? <laughs> <laughs> um, so whilst we're on the topic of impact, um, so the way I like to think about it is, and then I'll answer this question, um, is it's like a scale. So at one end, you've got, you're having a direct impact on people's lives. And so this is, you're meeting them face to face and you're improving their health, like a doctor. Mm. Um, on the other end of the scale, you've got very indirect impact. And so this may be, for example, uh, financial development aid. And so I've got a friend who works in Kenya and he controls some of the financial development aid while working with a company. 
and they invest in companies to have a social impact. Mm. And so his job day to day is he chooses companies which will indirectly have a fantastic impact on that country. So as an example, um, they've invested in a company which um, rents out industrial equipment to other companies in that area, and that area okay. is in Kenya, this mm. is. Um, and so if you think how in, indirect his personal impact is, so he'd be behind there looking at spreadsheets and uh, doing different research into companies and sectors mm. who then will have an indirect impact on a, another company which will hopefully improve the economy or something like that. Mm. I'm sure I'm not doing it quite justice. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, effectively, the scope that he can have is on a huge scale. And so if you think about maybe uh, medical researchers as well, are probably more towards that end. Mm. So you're in a lab, but you're having fantastic impact on a huge number of people, as well as, um, say, policy, policy creators. Mm. Um, and so initially, I was very much, I want to have a direct impact on people. Um, and then I read, it's a fantastic movement called the Effective Altruism Movement. Mm. And it's how to, uh, and there's also the 80,000 hours, which is kind of like career advice, which is spun out from the Effective Altruism. But Effective Altruism is um, how can you maximise your impact? And then 80,000 hours is, in our lives, we're on average work 80,000 hours. And it's how, through your career, can you have a fantastic impact? And so they talk about uh, such as financial development aid, but particularly uh, research or a really interesting idea of earning to give, mm. which is um, hypothetically if you were working in a hedge fund and you're earning a huge amount of money, so say you're 500k, and you give away just 10% of your money to charity, you're left with 450k. Um, so you've still got a fantastic lifestyle and you're giving away £50,000 to charity. And if you gave that to a charity such as a Malaria Aid Foundation, you statistically will save a life for every child, for every £10,000 you give. And so that's like malaria nets for hundreds of people, and with £50,000 you're statistically saving like at least five lives, as well as having great quality of life. Um, I don't think I'm at the stage where I want to be working in the <laughs> hedge fund just yet to maximise my impact mm. because I personally really enjoy the more direct nature of actually, so I used to do a lot of St John Ambulance first aid and you've gained seeing people face to face and seeing them get better I think is really rewarding. But I'm possibly looking for more of a balance than uh, say just meeting with patients day to day. And so it's shifting slightly from having a, a more focused, direct impact on people to having a, a, a wider, I don't want to say larger impact because there are different ways of measuring it, but a wider impact over more people, but more indirect. And so I'm very much looking into software engineering for this. So harnessing mm -hmm. my skills of, say, machine learning and software engineering to then, say, work at the, the med tech company I'm working at or... Um, and so the question which I've not at all decided on yet is whether being a doctor will enable me to, if I do want to carry on down the entrepreneurship and software engineering route, whether being a doctor will add considerably to that. Mm, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> out of curiosity, actually, I was speaking to a friend and they were, they're trying to describe how computer science is an art, but to you, 
which one seems not more of an art, but how would you describe computer science? Because medicine can be described as yes. an art. What is computer science to you? Um, and maybe in relation to medicine as well. Yeah. I think, well, I would argue both computer science and medicine are more tools than arts, but what you can do with them is art. So say mm. computer science is you have these fantastic repertoire of things you can build um, and using that you can develop things such as the visual cognition which is almost an art in the way that you're trying to you're going to be able to revolutionize the way people use the internet um, and the same with medicine I would argue is slightly more of a tool which you can then apply. Oh that's so true actually it kind of helps like with people who are more traditionally want to be a consultant in the mm. like very top end of one speciality that's where I'd say medicine is more like an art as opposed yes. to a tool whereas at the stage I'm at it seems more of a tool in order to kind of get to where I want to be. Got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. This brings us quite nicely to my favourite bit of the episodes, the cheesy puzzle wisdom. What top three cheesy puzzle wisdom would you have to give? So... What was your first app, out of curiosity? But, um, my first app was um, a Flappy Bird clone. So you could take a picture of your own face and that was the Flappy Bird. <laughs> Do you remember Flappy Bird, the game? Um, Maybe was it too like young. a red no, bird? No, no. <laughs> you know the game which jumps through the pipes? Oh, I'm thinking Angry Bird. Flappy Bird. It was this. And it jumps through the pipes. Oh, okay, yes. And I built a version of that of you take a picture of your own face mm. and it jumps <laughs> through the pipe. And I built it for my mum's um, birthday and it was her face going through the pipes. <laughs> and then every time you died, it did a little family quote but, um, of like, oh, like terrible family in-jokes. But um, what was hilarious was she was absolutely terrible at the game. So like, all she understood <laughs> it as was her face was dropped and then it gave a quote. And so I was like, no, you have to keep tapping. Um, so I've thought of my, my three pearls of wisdom. The first one is... I think it's really important to think critically about what you're working for. So at medical school, it's so easy to get caught up in the race and like the excitement of just competing in medical school, say in doing the exams or um, trying to get the best score in your OSCEs or those sorts of things. Mm. And actually taking a step back and thinking, is this what I should be aiming for? And so... One example is whether you could sue, so I'm not at all arguing don't work really hard in your exams, but I'm saying in terms of things you should be competing at, it should be you should be competing to maximise your impact. And so actually when I took a step back from trying to compete in my medical school exams to how can I uh, increase my impact, it was kind of that realisation of actually I do need to take a year out to focus on my computer science and that's going to allow me to have a much greater impact than say trying to maximize points. You definitely still want to do great in your medical school but whether some parts of your time can be spent doing say what you're doing or getting people together to set up a society like the MedTech Society at UCL I think is incredible um, and kind of channeling your energies towards something like that. Um, the second thing is uh, performing a series of experiments in your life. So the what triggered this was um, 
an article I read where they describe how in London there were tube strikes. They meant certain lines were shut. This massively disrupted people's routes. Mm -hmm. But what they realised after was that like something like 4% of people then stuck with their new route, even though the lines were reopened, because they realised that route was better, and they'd never actually like tried out the alternative route. And I think it's quite a nice metaphor for yeah, doing like a series of different experiments of maybe, say, so one I'm doing with a friend is, uh, so you go be vegetarian for two weeks, and you just try it, and um, you like research maybe into the reasons behind it, or say you try fasting or something like that. And so you you try out a few like lifestyle changes to see if they would benefit your life. Or say do two weeks of waking up at five in the morning and just seeing how it affects your productivity of the day. You may realise that actually it just makes you really sleepy. So it's a terrible <laughs> idea. But um, doing the little experiments of going to different events or different talks or a hackathon and uh, seeing what comes from that experience. Um, and the third one, the more actionable advice, is there's this fantastic app called Pocket. And you download it onto your phone, and you download the Chrome extension. And whenever you're just browsing the web, if you come across an article you want to read later, you just click the little Pocket icon, and it saves into your phone for you to read offline later. And so what that means is, I, whenever I'm like browsing the web or something, or particularly um, during lectures, if they come across a new concept I haven't heard of before, I'll just go on the Wikipedia page and add it to my pocket. And then, so I've got an hour commute into UCL and an hour out every day. And so then I just use that time to basically just blast through what's in my pocket and then kind of keep up. So I've always got something I want to read. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> if you look at my Safari browser, I've yeah. got at least 20 pages done because yeah. I keep doing that, but <laughs> yeah, I need to get this up. Thank you so yeah. much. No worries. So the, the three things were, one <coughs> is uh, like really think critically about what you're aiming for. Mm. So I think it could also apply for people who aren't medics is if you're, say, all racing for, say, a job in, in finance, taking that step back and thinking, is this really what I want? Or is it what I want because everyone else is aiming for? Mm. Um, and then the second one was kind of doing more experiments throughout your life, both to, both for the fun of it and seeing whether it could actually have a positive impact on your life. And the third one was the app called Pocket, which just has changed my commute. <laughs> okay. So I'd like to echo it so then I fully remember it as well. So the first is to think critically. The second yeah. is treat life as an experiment, not a program. Yeah. And the third is pocket yeah. that I need in my life. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, thank you so much for taking some time out to speak to me. I really appreciate it. Once again, thank you, Luke, for your time. Thank you guys for listening. And finally, if you have any questions for either Luke, myself, or any of my previous guests, don't hesitate to message me on Facebook at Medics Motive, slide into my DMs on Twitter at Medics Motive, or just plain old email me, medicsmotive at gmail.com. Email's still good. That's it for this episode. Until next time, much love and peace to you all.